without jumping straight into bad quotes and poor cliches, because most of you know how I feel about cliches, um, Julie Garland was very right. It is good to be home. There's no place like home. And, um, you know, there's lots of new faces here, um, and there's lots of um, familiar faces, we'll say. <laughs> very familiar faces. And uh, it's just great to, great to be back home. You know, there's a, a TV show that, that Nay and I really enjoy. Um, we haven't watched it in a little while, but it's called The West Wing. And on The West Wing, they've got this saying that they, they say a lot, if you're familiar with it, is, um, I serve at the pleasure of the president. And they say it all the way through the show. And um, you know what? Nay and I, we serve at the pleasure of our king. And, um, you know, where he says serve, we serve. Where he says go, we go. Where, um, where he says to put our hands to work, we put our hands to work. And, uh, and right now it's his goodwill to send us to all the way to sunny Melbourne and, um, and to be serving and loving on the folks down there. Uh, but you know what? No matter, no matter where the king asks us to, to serve, no matter who it is the, that the, the father asks us to, to go and love on, no matter what that looks like, no matter where we end up, this place and you guys will always be home. That will never change. And it's just so good to be home. Um, so that's enough of the sappy stuff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the reason being is so much of our story is bound up in this place and with you. Um, you know, I, I used to do this often while we were here, but, you know, right where you're sitting right there, Chris... That's where I felt the presence of Jesus for the very first time in my life. Right there, in that spot. And where that painting's sitting up the back there, that's where I was baptised in a big tub that I barely fit in. And nearly overflowed water everywhere. Right up there. You know, it was, um, it was right here when the stage was over here. It was right here that I, I saw my first person get healed, physically healed. Um, this is the place where I first cast a demon out. This is the place where, we, uh, where I first had an encounter with the person of the Holy Spirit. This is where I learned how to worship. You know? And Nay could tell her own stories about what this, this place and you people mean to us. Uh, and so it's uh, so much, so much of who we are uh, is, is because of you guys. I've actually got to tell this story because it's a great one. The, uh, it would have been probably two weeks after, after first being in here and, and meeting Jesus over on that spot. Literally, two weeks after that. And, um, and I was sitting in here one Sunday, and look, people had been praying for me, and, and it was really wonderful. Uh, I was having a good time and uh, meeting Jesus and working all this stuff out. But I've got to be honest, you know, when people would come out for ministry time, that stuff's weird, man. Like, that stuff was weird for me. And, um, you know, I was okay when people were praying for me, but, you know, I was, but it was weird to see that. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And, um, and so, anyways, two weeks after being in here for a little bit, and I'm, I'm sitting there, because I used to, I was intrigued. I was like, what's this all about? But I would just sit in my seat and kind of just, just watch. Now, I don't know whether he saw me or not, but, um, but Big D over here, Dave Delaney, you can call him Big D. Big D walks past me. He gives me a tap on the shoulder and he gives me these ones. Come with me. And I'm like, oh. I was like 19, 18, 19 years old and I was packing it, thinking that I'd done something wrong. <laughs> Anyways, he drags me down the front and he goes, put your hand on this bloke. And I was like, what? 
And anyways, ministry started to happen and all of a sudden it clicked for me. It was like people were praying for me, but I get to do this stuff too. I get to do this stuff too. And I didn't know anything. I didn't know a thing. And I get to do this stuff too. And that just kicked off in me a a hunger to want to participate, to want to be part of everything that God was doing. Whenever something was on, I wanted to be at it because God was there. And I wanted to be where God was. Um, That's just a fun story. Now, I did this last, I did this at the last conference, and it's actually starting to annoy me, so I'm going to do this now for later. It's kind of a bit of a thing that I do now, apparently. But, you know, there, there's really no place like home. Um, I've done that a couple of times at Westgate, and they all freaked out. No, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. Um, but Melbourne's been very, very good to us. The people of Melbourne have been very, very good to us. It is cold down there. Nobody told us that. <laughs> Nobody told us it was cold in Melbourne. What's up with you all? You just didn't tell me. Um, it's cold there, but it's been, it's been good. We saw our first frost and all that sort of stuff. It was, yay. Um, <laughs> no, it's been good. It really is like going to a whole other country, though, uh, compared to this place, uh, compared to... Growing up here in Pine Rivers, uh, it's like going to a whole new, whole new country. Some of it I'm very familiar with and some of it I'm not. Um, so it's been interesting. But in the last 15 months or so, you know, we've seen triumph and we've seen tragedy. We've celebrated births and dedications and we've stood side by side with people who have lost their loved ones, including a little baby. And that was very, very tough. We've seen bodies healed. We've seen demons cast out. We've seen souls and hearts restored and reconciled. We've seen relationships reconciled. Uh, we've seen the shalom of the kingdom of God advanced in, in, in a Melbourne, in a Western Melbourne. And you know what? We've taken our fair share of punches as well. All in all, it's just another season of living kingdom life on the front line of God's advancing kingdom in the earth. This is what it looks like. You can't, it's not all, again, to, for a bad quote, Sorry. It's going to mess me up now. To quote Rocky Balboa, which is just a bad thing to do, but to quote Rocky, life ain't all sunshine and rainbows. And it hasn't been, but it's been a lot of sunshine, well, not so much sunshine, but a lot of rainbows. And, uh, and it's been, uh, but it's also been tough too. And uh, you know what, I just want to just quickly, before I jump into this, just take a quick two seconds uh, to, to honour Kirk and Nicole because we couldn't have been trained for this any better without doubt and so uh, and I'll say this with every last breath that's in me but thanks guys we love you because we couldn't have been trained any better for it so look we've got tons of stories to tell you all and we're going to be here for the next four Sundays so you're going to have to put up with us for a little bit longer uh, but so we've got plenty of time to tell the stories of what we've seen God doing. Um, but, uh, and I've heard on the, on the, whatever, Facebook, um, that, uh, that for the last year here, you guys have been working off of three pillars, unity, authority, and kingdom expansion. And um, that's just hot. That's great. So what, I'm gonna, what I want to try and do this morning is I'm going to try and have a crack at all three of them. Um, 
So hold on, I'll either do this well or it'll fall in a big heap, so be gracious. Um, so I want to have a crack at all three of them. I want to talk about discipleship, because discipleship is very important. Uh, I, I wanna, the way I want to talk into it, though, is uh, hopefully just to maybe give you some, some newer insights into what discipleship, uh, biblical discipleship, actually really looks like. Uh, and some of you may already be walking this, but this may be completely new for some of you, that's okay. Uh, but what I want to do is just lay some runway before we get launch into this, because the runway is very important, because what I'm probably going to say may challenge you, uh, it may push some of your buttons either, uh, as well, also, um, it may even challenge your thinking, and I want it to, uh, but I want to be very clear about where I'm coming from, so please just hang in with me. Uh, hang in there with me for a little bit while I just paint this picture. Because it's something that the church has been wrestling with since Pentecost. And um, we haven't always done it very well, but that's okay. There's grace. And, um, but I just want to lay some runway here. So there's a bunch of different viewpoints, a bunch of different positions on this. And um, you know, some, are very, some are quite aggressive, some are quite passive. But you know, here in the vineyard, uh, one of the things that I've always loved about being part of this movement is that we're the quest for the radical middle. We're the quest for the radical middle. And so I think that there's a middle ground here that we can grab hold of. And uh, so that's the runway that I want to lay very quickly. Um, now in Melbourne and the Victorians, they do a fantastic job. Uh, it's a once You see it on TV, but when you're there, it, 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 they, do it, they really do live this in the way that they honour the first peoples of this great south land of the Holy Spirit, the way they, they honour and respect the Aboriginal people. They do a magnificent job of it. You might have seen it when you see, you know, like the Boxing Day test or any, any sporting event that happens in Melbourne. They usually get one of the Aboriginal elders out to come and they, you know, they, they welcome the people onto their land. And it's a beautiful little ceremony that they do, but it's honour and it's respect. And they do it very, very well. And they mean it too. It's not just airy-fairy words. They actually mean this thing. They take it seriously. And, um, and so for us as followers of Jesus, what does it look like for us to honour the first covenant people of God, the Hebrew people? What does that look like? Because there's a bunch of different positions and places that people tend to want to live in, and some of them aren't real great. Okay? So uh, one of them is uh, what's termed replacement theology. And replacement theology is when, uh, when we take the belief that the church has completely replaced the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people. They're no longer relevant and, and re so we don't need to worry about them at all. Then there's another edge to this that's up the other end and Paul spent a lot of time talking into this, a lot of time talking this, most aggressively in the book of Galatians in his letter to the people in Galatia. And I'm going to call them the Judaizers, Okay. Now, I've just lost my thing, so can you, can you flick the next slide for me, mate? Okay, so, or not. Um, there we go. So we got this little stream, and, and what's actually happening at the moment is there's a bunch of, bunch of folk who are, uh, you might have seen it on Facebook, there's a whole bunch of uh, hoopla at the moment about blood moons and all sorts of stuff that's going on, and um, you know what? If, if Jesus decides to turn up on Wednesday, which is Yom Kippur, which is the, the Day of Atonement, great, fantastic, we'll all go home and have a great time. Um, I don't tend to put too much stock in that. I have a, a, a good friend of mine 
he's, a, he's a Messianic Jew, his name is Lawrence Hirsch, and uh, he was, I was with him on Saturday, and he was actually saying, uh, he said, you know what, I can tell you exactly when Jesus is coming back, exactly when he's coming back, when you least expect it. <laughs> so stop it. I loved it, I thought it was great. Um, and so we, but for, for us in the vineyard, I could keep going on about that, I won't. Um, for us in the vineyard, we're about looking for the radical middle. Can you flick the next one? So we're looking for the radical middle. We're on the quest for the radical middle. Now, what is the radical middle? In the, so there's different positions on, on all of this. There are people who, uh, you know, who are you know, just inside of replacement theology, who are probably a bit indifferent to the, to the Hebrew people. And then on the other end, there, there are people who are you know, waving the flag. And, and none, none of that's inherently bad. But on, on both ends of both replacement theology and Judaizing, folks, that's heresy. That's heresy. I hate to be that blunt, but that's heresy. That's counter to Scripture. Anything that's counter to what Scripture says is heresy. Okay? So what's the middle ground? What's the middle ground? And I think it lays lies in honour and respect. I think it lies in the place, in a very similar place to what we see our, our, our Victorian brothers and sisters doing uh, with the Aboriginal people. Because as they honour the people, they're not asking to become them. You don't have to become Aboriginal. You don't have to adopt all their, tra their traditions and etc. But we honour them. We honour them as the first people here in this nation. We honour them and we respect them. And we understand that we're here as part of a, a line. We're here as part of something very special in this great Southland. And they're not removed from it. And it's the same with the Hebrew people. Because we tend to get stuck in this last 2,000 years. And so we get stuck in this last 2,000 years of church history. But what we've got to remember is that 2,000 years before that... God decided to reveal himself to this pagan dude who came out of Ur of the Chaldeans named Abram and in that set in motion the people and the culture that would give us Yeshua and Zare HaMashiach, Jesus of Nazareth, our Messiah, the Messiah. Okay? And so there's just, I guess I just wanted to say that because there's a lot of hoopla at the moment about all sorts of stuff that may or may not happen. Okay, and I'm, so I'm not coming at it from that place. And so it's through this culture, it's through this culture and through this people, essentially, that this book was written and grafted out. And it's through these people that, uh, that God has chosen to love the entire world. The entire world. And so rather than overlaying our worldview on top of Scripture, we need to let Scripture speak for itself. And part of that is allowing our minds and our hearts to become connected with the culture and the peoples in which this, the story plays out. The story plays out in these people. And, we need to under, and in order to be able to understand this fully, it doesn't mean you're not going to heaven because we, we get our ticket into heaven because of faith. You know, it's grace. Got that right? It's it's faith that we get in. It's not because we've studied this well or or not well. All we're doing, I think, is just missing out on the depth of God's love that He's poured out on these people for actually well beyond two thousand years before we before the church was birthed. And so we're part of a line. We're part of a story that's still continuing, that hasn't stopped, and is going to continue to continue. Um, until maybe Wednesday, 
but <laughs> who knows? So it's not just the last 2,000 years, though. And so what does this look like when we apply it to Scripture? What does this look like when we apply it to, to, to the Word of God? Um, you can flick the next one up if you like. I want to read to you a story that comes out of uh, the Gospel according to Matthew this morning. And Matthew, uh, Matthew was uh, also known as Levi, the tax collector, in, uh, in, in the Gospels. And, um, pardon me, he's, uh, so he was there. He's writing an eyewitness account of what happened and the, uh, and the story of Jesus. Now, historically, this is just, I'm throwing this one in there for free. Um, historically, this is what we call a primary source, okay? A primary source. This is the best kind of history you can get. There is no better source of history that you can get other than a primary source, okay? Even all the works that we have on Julius Caesar, okay, at best are maybe tertiary sources, Okay, there are no eyewitness accounts. Nobody wrote anything down when he was alive. Okay? This is a better eyewitness account than everything that we have on Julius Caesar. Okay? Just in case anybody wants to throw that one at you. But I want to give you a bit of context because Matthew is not writing into the air. He's, he's writing into a specific context and it's very important that we grab hold of this. Because what Matthew's writing into is uh, he's writing to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome, um, now we can, we can ascertain that it was probably, there was a, probably a lot of Hebrew people in that church, but there wasn't fully a Hebrew church. Okay, we can't make that assumption. But the reason that we can is because there's a lot of those overtones that come through his gospel. But the context that he's writing into is one of incredible persecution under the Emperor Nero. Incredible persecution. And, um, and the reason that he's writing is to encourage encourage the believers to keep going. He's encouraging them to keep going. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep going, keep going. And that's the whole you know, thrust of, uh, of his writing. And so um, it's actually in, in that context, what's funny, we have this perception that, uh, that Christianity was outlawed by the Romans because they didn't like Jesus. It actually had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with that. They couldn't have cared less about our faith. In fact, they actually had a series of laws in place to protect religious freedoms. It was called the Pax Romana, which in Latin is, uh, is, is a Roman peace. And part of that law system allowed people to practice their own faith so long as it didn't interrupt or affect uh, Roman rule. Now, what happened, what actually happened in that time, because they didn't care about the fact that they... That, these people followed Jesus. They thought, it was, they thought it was silly. They thought it was foolish, this guy who was crucified. They didn't get it. And so they didn't really care about that. Um, and so uh, the only time that any, any faith became under you know, persecution or you know, eradication by the Romans was when it was seditious. And the thing is, is that Jesus had been cleared of sedition. That was why he was on trial in front of Pilate. He was on trial in front of Pilate for sedition, and Pilate exonerated him from it. He said, there's no sedition here. Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate didn't get it, but he goes, well, this guy's no threat. There's no threat in this guy. And so the, the precedence there that the, the church was no threat to Rome. So what happened that made the church persecuted? 
It's a wonderful story. It's a sad story, but it's a wonderful story. It was because in, uh, under Roman law, they actually, there was, uh, look, if Monty Python has taught us anything, and it's taught us plenty, it's that there's many things that the Romans have given us. The aqueducts, and even sanitation. Now, it's true, they were, they were world leaders at the time in sanitation, but it still wasn't all that great. And uh, so every now and then, they would actually have plagues that would come through, plagues and etc., those sort of things that would, would sweep through whole cities and through whole towns. And uh, under Roman law, what you were obliged to do if somebody came under the, those plagues, etc., pestilence, whatever you want to call them, if something like that happened, you were obliged in your family, it didn't matter who it was, whether it was your wife, your mother, your father, your child, your great-grandmother, your great-auntie, it didn't matter if they were in your household and they caught it, you were to open the door, put them out into the street and close the door behind you. Roman law. You had to do that. Now, the followers of Jesus, they couldn't do that. They couldn't allow that to happen. This is where the compassionate heart of God comes into play. They couldn't stand by and let that happen. So they would go and they would sit with them or they would go and take them into their own homes. They were breaking Roman law at that point. And they would, they would sit with them. They would pray with them. Some of them would be healed. Some of them wouldn't. In fact, some of the followers of Jesus would die because they caught the plagues that they were... But they couldn't allow it. They couldn't allow somebody to, to die insignificantly like that. They couldn't do it. And that is what they came under persecution for because the, the Roman people would look at them and go, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are standing next to the poor and the helpless and those who are sick and dying? Who do you think you are? You are Christianoi, which is Latin for little Christs. That's how we got our name. We got our name because people were sitting in the gutter with people who were dying. That's how we got our name. And so it was because of that that, the, that the, the church came under persecution. It's because of that that the Romans persecuted us. Now, history will tell us that, that Nero, because um, he, was, he was a mashuganer, he was, he was nuts. And um, so he decided, it, it, there's no evidence for this, but it's pretty well established that he set fire to Rome and he blamed uh, the followers of Jesus for it. And the Roman historian Tacitus, I love reading ancient history, and the Roman historian Tacitus actually says that uh, it wasn't so much for arson that the, the people of Jesus were being rounded up. And I'll quote this bit. It was for hatred towards humanity that, Ro that Rome and Nero were rounding up the followers of Jesus and not just putting a bullet in them, cru crucifying them. One of the ways that they used to kill them was they'd put them up in the cage and they'd cover them in tar and light them up. And they would light, and literally the streets of Rome were lit with the burning corpses of followers of Jesus. That is what Matthew is writing into. That's the context. Okay, so every time you read Matthew now, Mark actually writes to Rome as well. Um, but when you read this, this gospel, that's what, that's what Matthew is writing into. He's not writing into 21st century Australia. Okay, so that's what he's writing into. Now, Matthew 14. Now I'm going to uh, I'm going to read this in the ESV because I, I read I read the ESV. That's the English Standard Version or the Extra Spiritual Version, if you prefer. I need all the help I can get, so I'm going to go with that one, the Extra Spiritual one. So if you if you got it on an app or something like that, then you can you can change it so it all makes sense. If you're going off the old school one, sorry. 
Um, all right, so we're going to start in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Matthew writes, Immediately he, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come onto the water with you. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I love that little story. It's a story that we're probably all very familiar with. And... uh, if you, read the, if you read some of the commentators and, uh, and some of the, the people who, who write about these things, some of the theologians, what they'll tend to do with this piece of scripture is they'll grab onto the fact that this is a piece of scripture that points to Jesus being the one, Jesus being the, the, the Messiah. He's the one. This is a proof of, of his deity, of him being the one that was to come. Amen. That's exactly, it's exactly what it is. Um, but what we tend to do is leave it there because this is actually a story of discipleship. Now you might go, oh yeah, I can see that. That's there. He, you know, Pete was obedient. He got out of the boat and that's great. You know, I can see that. I can see that, that going on. That's discipleship. He took a risk. That's great. Absolutely. That's all discipleship too, without doubt. And we, here in the vineyard, we, we really bang on about that one, that faith is spelled R-I-S-K and Pete was taking a big risk. Or was he? Or was he? Because what we, what we don't get, being 21st century uh, Australians and even some of the theologians that run around, uh, we miss a dynamic that's going on here that's deeply rooted in the Hebrew culture and people. It's deeply rooted there, and I just want to unpack this a little bit because hopefully it'll get us just delving into this book a little bit more than maybe we have been. Because for me, every time I open this thing, it's like an adventure. I love it. It's great. You get in there and you, you find a piece of scripture and you read about it and you read more about it than you read more about the, the people and the, the language and you go, wow, look at that. It's so much more than just a few words. It makes sense. So what I want to do is do that. Now, um, because the, the, the thing is, is that discipleship, being disciples, is not a notion that's unique to Christianity. It's not our thing, just our thing. Uh, discipleship and being disciples has been in play for millennia and millennia in all sorts of different cultures and is still happening today in many cultures uh, you know, in, in Africa, in South America, in North America, in, in parts of Asia, um, even in Polynesia. You know, in, throughout history, uh, discipleship has been a huge thing as part of the culture of the people. Now, for us... You would have heard it said many times here, because I know I was one of the ones who said it, and, and so I know others said it. We, uh, we have been taught to think Greek. 
We have been taught to think analytically. We've been taught to think logically. Our education system comes down to us uh, through, through Greek thought. And, uh, and so we're taught to think that way. And, uh, and I know I've done this in, uh, when preaching about discipleship. Now I grab hold of that, the, the New Testament Greek word, methetes. And methetes literally means student or learner. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what it is. The problem, we enc- the problem we encounter is when we apply it to what it means to be a student or a learner today. That's radically different, okay? Because the Hebrew word for disciple is the word talmid. And being a talmid is a radically different thing to being a methetes. Now, I don't think my next slide's going to work because I had it in a Hebrew font and it's, I don't think it's very happy. No, it didn't work. Um, so you might just have to skip just to one more. Yeah, just leave it there. That's okay. Thank you. Um, it did look really nice. But anyway. Uh, so the Hebrew word is Talmud. The only reason I put it up there is so that you can see it. You know, that's the original language that it was in. But see, a Talmud was very, very different. And Peter and all of the disciples were Talmudim. That's the plural version of it. If you're a lady, then it's Talmudo or Talma. Uh, and plural lady disciples are Talmudo. That may be a useless piece of information for you, but anyways. The, uh, now, what, what, what was so different about being a, a, a Talmudim or a Talmud of, uh, of your, your rabbi in Jewish culture was something that uh, a, a man who sadly passed away in 2003, he was a professor emeritus, emeritus at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, he was a he was a Hebrew. Um, he had the best name, oh, cracking name. His name's Shmuel Sefrai. What a great name, Shmuel. I think it's great. I can just kind of see his mum, you know, calling him in for dinner. Shmuel, get in here, get in here, Shmuel. It's dinner time. I'm going to call my next. Uh, well, I was going to say. Dog. <laughs> there it is, the shovel. Crikey. All right. Shmuel, he said, he said this, and I've got it up on the screen there. He said, students in... You have to flick it when I get to the point at the end of it because it's in two slides. He said, students in New Testament times were called Talmudim in Hebrew, which is translated disciple. There was much more to a Talmud than what we call student. A student wants to know what a teacher knows for the grade, to complete the class or degree, or even out of respect for the teacher. A Talmud wants to be like the teacher, to become what the teacher is. That means that students were passionately devoted to their rabbi. Passionately devoted to their rabbi and noted everything he did or said. As the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of scripture, which is called his halakha, as the rabbi taught his halakha, the students, the Talmudim, listened and watched and imitated so as to become like him. Eventually, they would become teachers, passing on that lifestyle to their Talmudim. Now, just quickly, if, uh, if there's anybody wrestling with a cessationist theology, this applied literally blows that out of the water. Literally. D- 
demolishes it, apart from all of the stuff that I could also point to in Scripture, literally, this understanding of discipleship utterly destroys cessationism. and That's the, the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. Utterly destroys them and miracles, that they don't happen today. Utterly destroys it because the, this is something that continues on. And if Jesus is the rabbi, not just a rabbi, the rabbi that we are to follow, then we get to imitate him. Now, what's happening, if I go back here, what's actually happening, I'll reread this little section to you. Um, it says that, but when the disciples saw, so I'm going to start back in verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This next bit is the crucial bit. Then Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, now what's he doing? Right there he's saying, I can do everything that you do. Everything that you do, Jesus, I'm your Talmud. I can do that too. So whatever you're doing, I get to do. And so he's looking out, because they don't know, they're not, they still think it's a ghost. And he's trying to work it out. And he goes, well, if that's really you, you, know, you can see that coming through. If that's really you, Jesus, then tell me to come out on the water with you. Why did he say that? Because he could do what his rabbi did. He could do it. He could do it. Do we have that understanding? Do we live from that place? Everything that's in, the, in Scripture, we get to do. But what's even better than that is it doesn't just live here in Scripture. It's about Jesus, where are you right now? Right now in this moment, right now while I'm sitting here at church, right now as I'm doing my grocery shopping, right now as I'm at, at work, right now as I'm dropping the kids off, right now, whatever I'm doing, while I'm at the gym, whatever you're doing. Jesus, where are you right now? Because I get to be where you are. I get to do what you do. Whatever you're doing, I get in on. Because I'm a Talmud. I'm a disciple. Peter did this better than any of the 12, by far. Pete was always the first to put his hand up, say something stupid, whatever. You know, he was always the first one, and that's why he kept messing it up. But you know, Robbie's going to be here next week, and I want to quote something that Robbie said. I heard Robbie say once, he said, you know what? God can use a failure. He can't use a quitter. We're going to fail. I've failed a thousand times. I'm going to keep failing. But I, God can't use a quitter. He can use a failure. He can use me. You read through that book, the majority of the people in there are failures. Most of them. All of them. That's good news for you and me. Me more, but it's good news. There's a, I'm going to bring this one in the land, but there's a, there's a apocryphal book. Now, a, just because something's apocryphal doesn't mean that it's heresy. It just means that we don't give it the same weight as scripture, okay? Uh, and so the, the apocrypha, which is the, the intertestamental writings, and also the apocryphal writings of, uh, of the, uh, the, the early church age, some of them are very, very good. We've got to learn to differenti differentiate, though, because some of them are Gnostic and not very helpful at all. But there's one in particular that I want to just mention. It's called the Acts of Peter. And in the Acts of Peter, it's the story of Peter uh, post-Pentecost. And we have no reason not to, not to believe this. Um, he, uh, so there was this time where Pete, uh, he was in Rome. And he was with the Roman believers. At this time that Matthew's speaking into, actually, under persecution by Nero, 
And Pete's in Rome, and he's hanging out with the, with the disciples there. And anyways, there was a big move of the Romans to, you know, to round up the, the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus. And, uh, and at that time, the people who were with him, I'm paraphrasing this, there's stories there in the, in the book, but uh, what happened, he, uh, as, as this persecution's about to happen, the, the church there starts going, Pete, you've got to get out of here, mate. Get out of here quick because this is no good. And, you know, we're happy to go and die, but we need you. We need you to, be, to keep teaching us and to showing us what Jesus was like and, and we need you. So you've got to get out of here and then come back once this thing's over. And Pete said, no, 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 I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay. He'd learned his lesson, remember? He'd learned his lesson from, uh, from that, that fateful night. He'd learned his lesson. No, I'm staying, he said. Eventually they wore him down and he, he did go. And as he's walking out of the road, down the road, out of Rome... Um, he, he sees Jesus. He sees the risen Jesus standing in front of him. And, uh, and the risen Jesus is standing there and he's walking the other way. And just as Jesus gets to him, uh, Pete says to him these the fairly well-known words in Latin. Uh, he says, quo vadis. He says, quo vadis, which means where are you going? And Jesus says this to him. He says, ramam vado. I'm, my Latin's terrible. Iterum crucifigi. He says, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And Pete goes, oh, bummer. I'm a disciple. I do what my king does. So he turns around, marches straight back into Rome, and there he's killed. There's a saying, and I, I got my slides missed up, but there's a saying that the, uh, that the rabbis used to bless the Talmuds with and it's a, it's a saying that if you're familiar with some of Rob Bell's work, uh, the Numa series, not, not some of his newer stuff, I, j- I just want to honour Rob Bell for a minute. You know, there's a, sure, he, he might have, you know, slipped on a banana peel and bumped his head and he's in a weird place right now, but God bless him, he did some really good things and has done some really good things and Jesus loves him, so I just want to honour him. Um, because that Numa series, there was one in that Numa series called Dust, and, uh, and he picks up on this, so if you, you might be familiar with this saying, but there's a saying that the Hebrew rabbis would bless their, ta- their Talmuds with, and it was, may you follow your rabbi so closely that you're covered in his dust. To be so close to him. Peter learnt that. Peter had to learn that, and we have to learn that. I'm still learning that. We're all still learning that. It took it till almost his last breath for him to continue to keep learning that. That's what it means to continue to be a learner. But, uh, but this question, quo vadis, I serve at the pleasure of the king. Do you? Do you serve at the pleasure of the king? Can you look at your life right now and say, I serve at the pleasure of the king? I'm not trying to you know, puff myself up here and say, I've got it all together because I don't. Um, if those who know me know I definitely don't. Um, but this is the thing that I continue to be challenged by. Am I a disciple or not? Am I following Jesus? Am I looking for what he's doing? Am I wanting and desiring? Am I passionately devoted to my rabbi? Am I passionately devoted to him? Because if I'm not passionately devoted to him, then I'm not devoted to him at all. That's the bottom line. There's no grey area here. And I know this might be... I might be sounding a little bit tough here, but there's no fence sitters. 
There's no option to just hide. There's no option to go, you know what, Jesus, I love this, I get to go into heaven thing. I love the fact that you get to bless me lots sometimes when, it, you know, that's really neat. But this whole thing of, you know, serving at your pleasure, I'm not real, not real hot on that. I've got to be honest, I have days like that too. You're just lying if you say you don't. You know, we all have days like that. It's not, because if we live this thing out of our emotions, oh man, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in big trouble. I know I would be. Maybe you guys are a bit more emotionally stable than I am, but I know I wouldn't be. Because the reality is, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. That's what Pete says. We've left everything to follow you. The rub of that has really hit us in the last 15 months. We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. We've left everything. Have we been captivated by the beauty of his majesty, the psalmist says. Isaiah says, by the, by, uh, by the display of his splendor. Have we been captivated by that? How long has it been since you've been captivated by him? How long has it been since, since the weight of his presence and his glory has rested on you and has just ripped your heart bare? That's what happened to me over there and has continued to happen for me. Well, not so much every day. I'd like it to happen every day. But every now and then when I, when I realize that I've taken my eyes off of him and I need to get them back, that's what he does. That's what he does. He comes and he captivates me by the beauty of his majesty so that I can be passionately devoted to Rabbi Yeshua, to Rabbi Jesus, to my King Jesus, so captivated that when he calls me out of the boat, when he calls me to get out there, because he's not always walking on the water in the storm. You know, he's not always out there. Sometimes he asks us to do some pretty neat stuff. Sometimes he asks us to do the stuff that's really passionate in our hearts because he's put it there. He's put it inside of you. Every single one of us in here has a part to play in the life of this fellowship. And if you, if you haven't asked that question, then you'd better because you, you're just missing out. You know, I, I'm not trying to put something on you. I'm just calling you out of that. You know, you're missing out otherwise because God's got something more. There's more fun to be had. There's more of Jesus to be had. There's more of him doing neat stuff like walking on the water. Now, I'm not saying you should go to the local pool and have a crack at it because he might not be out there and you might look a bit silly. Um, I don't know of anybody who's walked on water. Actually, I've heard some stories, but that's not the point. The point is that I don't care where he is, I don't care what he's doing, and I don't care the cost. I want in. I want in. Because that's what it means to be passionately devoted. That's what it means. That's what these guys did. They left everything. And they walked with him. Now, that doesn't mean that right now you've got to walk out and sell your house and do all that sort of stuff. It means, where's Jesus? What's he asking you to do right now? What's he asking you to do in your workplace? What's he asking you to do in all of these other areas of your life? And are you willing to bear the cost? Are you willing to take the cost? Now, again, I'm not saying I do this well but I'm getting better. It's not about how well we do. It's about whether we're doing it or not. Because discipleship is not about what we know. It's about who we know. It's about who we know. Do you know Jesus or do you just know about him? Because you weren't called to know about him. You're called to know him. Him. And him intimately. Him passionately. This is why he said, it is necessary that I go. I have to go. 
He had to go so that he could send the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit, so that he could be right here in this room with you and me right now and every day of our lives so that he could do that because when he was here in his physical form, he couldn't do that. He couldn't be with us that way. It is necessary that I go. This is the fulfilment of the atonement. The fulfilment of the atonement is that he gets to be here right now. Sure, it's paid for our eternity, but it's paid for our eternity and he's here right now. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is ready and available for you and me to engage with because the king is here. The king is here. So there's just two things that I, I, as as I bring this thing in, two things that I really felt just in praying this week in the lead up to coming here that I felt like the Lord really wanted to do uh, and be here for, for you all. And, uh, and that's it. If, if you've lost your passion, if you're just going through the motions, look, we've all gone through times like that, but if you're just going through the motions and, and that sort of radical, you know, intense passion, passionate, being passionately devoted to Jesus, that's, you're not really walking that right now. Pardon me. The good news is, is that the, the kingdom of God is at hand and the power of God's Holy Spirit is here to rouse your soul out of its slumber and to set you on the path of following Jesus. That sounded a bit new agey, didn't it? Forget that. Just to, to set you in the feet, walking after, being covered in the dust of Jesus. The second thing is, is if you really need to see him in your circumstances right now, if you're really struggling to see Jesus, if you've got this whole thing, if you feel like you're in the boat and you're going up and down on the waves and you're getting belted uh, and you're struggling to see him, then it's his good pleasure, Luke's gospel tells us, it's his good pleasure to give you and me the kingdom. It's his good pleasure. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. So what I want to do is, uh, we've got some words of knowledge here too. How good is that? I love that. That's just great. Let's see if I can read Big D's writing.